Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 73, Waiting for Barbarossa. Last time, Gustav had been released from jail in December of 1923, after serving seven months, having truly earned his bona fides as a Krupp. And his downtime had allowed him to come back to us with a fresh perspective. He also brought back enthusiasm for his country's future, which was now a rare commodity in Germany. Well, there was at least one more person who saw Germany's potential for greatness and had an idea of how to achieve it, but ironically was himself now in jail at the Landsberg Amlek prison in Bavaria. The Bierhauptputsch did not end the way Hitler wanted it, but the trial was nothing but a show trial. The two under-judges sympathetic to his cause, the accused was allowed to harangue those in authority all he wanted, which played well to those who were out of work, food, or money, or all three. And that list included many, many Germans. Like Gustav, Hitler would not serve his full term, a mere eight months, but he would be restricted when he was allowed to leave. Though not allowed to give speeches for a while, Hitler's other skills came to the fore, as he was still allowed to run a newspaper. His propaganda through the written word would have to serve him for a while. Whereas Gustav had no restrictions placed on him, those that already existed that laid heavy on his country were for everyone. Yet Gustav's strident belief that his country's savior was coming was as strong as ever, and it was his job to be ready to give their expected leader the weapons he needed to not only free Germany from the shackles, but to place those very humiliating apparatus on their enemies, France and Belgium. Supposedly, Frederick I, or Frederick Barbarossa, a.k.a. Redbeard, slept in Kaifhauser Mountain in Bavaria, and when he was needed, the ravens would cease flying around the mountain. The emperor would wake in whatever form and restore Germany to its greatness. Stories like this are littered throughout many cultures, but Gustav took this one to heart, and unlike the vast majority of believers, he could do something about it. First, the Russian project had to go. No wheat was growing in the steppe. The wind took the topsoil away each time the land was tilled. To compensate the Russians, some of their younger technicians were sent to Essen to learn the ways of steelmaking. Next, Krupp salesmen were sent to Moscow and Peking with catalogs of their various farming equipment. And considering the size of those countries, sales started pouring into the Ruhr once again. Then Gustav focused on his engineers and told them the time had come to take steel to a whole new level, and they replied with success. Taking cobalt and tungsten carbide, these were crushed and then pressed together in 1600-degree heat, then honed with diamonds. Labeled Vidya, it was the hardest steel in history. Shown off in 1926, sales of Vidya, along with their farming equipment, required the firm to bring on 30,000 more Krumpenier. The name Krupp might be known for armaments, but it was also known for its various steel alloys. 
Jumping ahead a bit, in 1929, American engineers had decided that Krupp's Enduro KA-2 was simply the best stainless steel available. They had been employed by Chrysler to seek this out, to finish off the top of the Chrysler building in Manhattan. It's still there today. Gustav also invigorated his engineers to seek ways around the lost minerals to them due to certain countries cutting off trade after the war. Soon, Essen was able to take low-grade iron ore and make it into high-grade steel. This cost-saving technology allowed Krupp once again to dominate the industry. This announcement alone shocked France. But perhaps shock isn't the right word. In order to be shocked, you have to have a certain level of energy. France, after its foray into occupying the Ruhr, started that slow slide into anti-militancy, and then just kept going. If represented on a graph, Germany's military strength started to rise, though certainly from a weakened position, while France's started to decline, again from a much higher starting point. In time, the two lines would cross and grow ever further apart, until 1940, when the French line would be wiped from the graph. But make no mistake, Berlin was actively, if rather quietly, supporting Krupp and the other smokestack barons. In a very short time after Gustav was released from jail, German industry started once again buying most of the coal from the Ruhr, the French being left empty-handed. This quickened the pace of decay as touching the French armaments industry. Schneider of France never had a chance because the game was far from fair. The French and the Belgians made one last attempt to curb German domination. Created in 1926, countries like France, Britain, Belgium, Germany, Luxembourg, Austria, and Czechoslovakia formed a cartel. The idea was to limit yearly production with a quota. Anyone who exceeded it had to pay a fine. Right away, the Germans exceeded it, because they could, and then happily paid the fines, because they could. Then Berlin, or rather the barons of the Ruhr, threatened to quit the project unless the fines were lowered. They were, and then Germany exceeded the quotas even more. The cartel soon collapsed completely. So here was Germany dominating the steel industry, the coal industry, and producing more steel than anyone else. Where was that steel going to? What was it being molded into? Plowshares? Had France not been on the path of what can only be described as a weakening of its moral fiber or national will, perhaps troops could have once again been sent into Essen to find these answers. But the French and Belgians had had their chance. Also, the Germans had the perfect answer for whenever questions were raised. Simply, the man or organization posing the questions were fiercely labeled warmongers. And such was the attitude towards the military at the time that this caused the accusations to be quickly withdrawn. It also helped Gustav's position that he simply could do no wrong in the eyes of the Krumpenier. And as any king can tell you, if you never lose the love of the people, you hardly ever lose, period. 
For the crumpeneer, Gustav was the embodiment of German armor. It didn't hurt upon release that Gustav resumed payments to the workers' pension plans. It's not that Gustav was perfect or never made mistakes, but when he did, the workers blamed Berlin or foreigners, anyone but the head Krupp. So, how did Gustav get around the Versailles Treaty? How did he keep on designing, building, and testing weapons? The answer, though complex, was simply he kept his hands moving. No outsider allowed to see the full picture, and besides, there was no one entity on the planet that could devote itself to observing all of what was going on in the name of Krupp. Gustav's world was just too big. Not that Gustav's name was on everything. He had learned to mislabel the various parts of the process of weapons building. Using foreign stock as collateral, he borrowed the equivalent of 100 million marks in Dutch guilders and continued on. Krupp also borrowed $10 million from the U.S. and, with this foreign currency, continued purchasing the materials he needed. The outside world, not sure of what was going on, was, regardless, happy for the business. And each supplier did not know about the others, as everything was done with false fronts or in the name of a third party. Much-needed foreign currency also came from Britain. It took a while, though after the war, Krupp pressed for the rights to be paid under the Krupp patent used by Vickers for their shell design asking for 260,000 pounds, an amount Gustav knew they would never get. Still, it was an accurate amount to ask for, as proved by Krupp's books. The indelicate question had to go before the Anglo-German Mixed Arbitration Tribunal, which took years, but by October of 1926, Vickers handed over some 40,000 pounds. Not nearly what had been due, but British pounds went very far in Germany at the time. Then there was simply the German government in Berlin doing what it needed to do to make sure Krupp stayed afloat, knowing its services would be needed one day. First, there was the 60 million gold marks given over so the Americans could be paid off. Next, a gift of 75 million marks to compensate the works for its time of being occupied by the French. After that, the handouts become more convoluted, harder to read. But before 1939, Germany's armorer was given at least 300 million marks. Best guess is that most of this money was handed over by the German democratic governments. Did they want a more progressive government? Most certainly. Did they also want revenge on their enemies one day? even more. And at the head of the pack was Gustav. His papers would be captured by the Americans in 1945, and they showed his firm belief that a leader was coming, and that he, Gustav, would certainly be ready. There would be cash reserves to kickstart a major rearmament when called upon. But until then, the works would continue designing better weapons better shells, and strive to make Krupp steel harder than it had been before. Krupp would also seek to make new weapons, not seen during the Franco-Prussian War or the Great War. For a long time after the Great War, 
The man between the works and Berlin was General Oberst von Sett, acting as both the chief of the army and the point man for his country's rearmament. Just like Gustav, Sect detested the Versailles Treaty and what it was doing to Germany, and just knew that one day a savior would come. So, like Gustav, Sect knew that the works had to be more than just protected. It had to be ready to take up the call put out by the modern-day Barbarossa, whomever that was. What's more, both Gustav and Sect knew that Germany had an ace up its sleeve or rather, a sleeve full of aces. The workers, designers, and engineers employed by Krupp still retained their knowledge, unless the Allies were prepared to incarcerate or kill tens of thousands of Krumpenier. Whenever or however the shackles of Versailles were thrown off, those men would be able to get back to work without missing a beat, thanks to the work Gustav found for them to keep their skills sharp. Essen, the Ruhr, Berlin, all of Germany was just waiting. And in that waiting, Gustav laid the groundwork for Germany's rise, which he considered his greatest contribution to his company. But how did he do it? How did Germany do it under the collective nose of the Allies? First, some context. On July 15, 1921, the then-Chancellor Wirth formalized an Allied written document that Krupp could only make one type of gun and only make four of them each year. As for the Navy, the works were only allowed to produce enough of anything, weapons or plating, to replace rusting equipment. Nothing more. Even this paltry production would be under the supervision of the Allied Control Commission. And had that been the extent of those watching Essen, it would have been bad enough but seemingly everywhere were the worst of spies, foreign correspondents. Yet they too, like the Allies, were swindled. The Christian Science Monitor was impressed with the work's ability to produce mostly railroad equipment. The Manchester Guardian glowed, Peace is taking revenge at Krupp's. Another periodical wrote that only a small dark section of the works was dedicated to weapons design. I wonder if Gustav had the cobwebs for that corner flown in, as nothing like that would have been tolerated since the days of the great Alfred. It seemed that Krupp's evil ways were a thing of the past. But the reporters should have remembered they were dealing with engineers who were seeking to hide their work. Steps would have been taken, and these men would have known what to do. For example, photographers were always invited to the well-supplied administrative building's cafeteria for a free meal. It was then their cameras were exposed to infrared light, which ruined all the negatives. But what it came down to, for the Germans, was teamwork. The works, the politicians, the remaining German officers. The Allied Commission was in Essen for six years, but there was always someone just ahead of them calling in their every movement, literally, from room to room, to Krupp's. So when a spy, I mean an Allied agent, seemed to be coming Krupp's way, all paperwork and designs were hidden. And in essence, that's all that was being done. Theoretical work. 
When the Allies first showed up, not the soldiers, but the technicians, who would know what to look for, Gustav had the artillery designers packed up and sent to Spandau, just outside Berlin, to continue their work. Meanwhile, in Berlin, as Germany was forbidden to have a general staff, the Troops Department stood in its stead, fulfilling that role. And Gustav worked closely with this body to ready Germany for the next war, for there would be another one. Those that mattered in Germany were determined to make it so. Having his detailed question answered by the German Troop Department, Krupps established in 1921 a slew of new patents, all relative to war activity. 26 patents for artillery control devices, 18 for electrical fire control, 9 for fuses and shells, 17 for field guns, and 14 more for heavy cannon. This flurry of administrative and theoretical progress coincided with the Allies, albeit France less so, of starting to feel that they had pushed Germany too far in blaming them for the war and the subsequent punishments. It was too late for Germany, having felt the lash of the whip. But the Allies, again France less so, started backing off Germany, which would partially explain this lack of determined action in forestalling Hitler when he started making his masterful diplomacy moves from a position of strength. In reality, it was rather the reverse. It was not Germany that was stronger than all the others during the 1930s, but that the Allies had no stomach for war, or even using the threat of it, whereas that's all Hitler had for a while, so used it convincingly. Krupp's true progress happened outside Germany, in Eastern Europe and Western Russia. German pilots, the future backbone of the Luftwaffe, trained in Russia. Krupp's helped the communists with their technical matters for a munitions industry, and in exchange, the works got to test fire the few artillery pieces actually made in the Urals. Gustav in Berlin agreed that massive cannon did not need to be made at this point, as the guns quickly became obsolete. It was only important for now to test a few, improve them, and then test a few more again. The real work was in the blueprints. As for whatever progress was made in the lands of Russia, those documents have been lost or destroyed. Suffice it to say, this mutually beneficial agreement went on until 1935 when Hitler threw off Versailles and began to openly rearm the Third Reich. It's worth noting that though many of the Reichstag's representatives did not know what was going on, though they would have approved in spirit, that much of Krupp's work was accomplished just a city block or two from their doorstep. There, the unassuming men walked into an office each day, no one ever knocked on their door or bothered them, and as the days and months went by, these men from Essen designed guns that would bring Germany to its greatest heights. The first tank was designed there, though labeled as an agricultural tractor. Then came the light, medium, and heavy agricultural tractor designs. And if one knew where to look, some of those designs showed tractors with a 7.5 centimeter cannon attached. Yet no one but Krupp's and the officer corps knew where to look. 
Yet these papers, with the dates duly stamped on them, would be found by the Americans and used at the Nuremberg trials years later. The same process was occurring for future naval weapons. These designs as well would come back to haunt the men of Berlin and Krupp after the war. But ahead of the generals, the admirals, and the politicians, again, was Gustav. As early as 1921, the head Krupp exchanged some of his patents for shares in the Swedish steel firm of Actil Bolaget Borfors, until he had enough stock to take control of its production. This was done without pressure from Berlin. In fact, Germany's leaders in the know did not know of this until it was an established fact. Before 1921 was over, Borfors was turning out, not simply designing, a gun developed in Essen, the L-20, a 7.5-centimeter mountain gun. Soon everyone who might conceivably have to fight an enemy in hill country was buying the L-20 from Borfor, not Krupp's. But Gustav was making money and getting his men meaningful experience. Then Denmark was brought in, buying impressive amounts of Borfor weapons. And whenever they, or anyone else, test-fired or held field exercises, German officers were always present, taking notes. But by the end of the 1920s, enough socialists from Sweden had put together two and two, and they soon passed a law banning foreign ownership of Swedish arms manufacturing. They, unlike the German socialists, weren't being executed by the dozens each year, so were not afraid. But Gustav was ready for this. Within no time, a holding company was formed, so Krupp's name appeared nowhere on any stock holding reports or dividend payments. Yet the money most certainly found its way to Essen. Yet the Borfors enterprise was but the tip of the Gustav rearmament iceberg. Most of the work was being done in Holland. Krupp, quite wisely, sold shares of his dummy Swedish corporation there to powerful men, who then received impressive dividends. So when the French gathered enough information to demand access to certain testing facilities in Holland, the government simply replied that no foreign power had any right to search through the records of what was a private company. The French were rebuffed. Soon, Krupp plans or patents were sold to Japan, Spain, Finland, and Turkey. In fact, it would be in Finland where U-boats won through 24, would be designed and built, through fake corporations, of course. Money, lots of money, it seems, allowed any patriot of whatever country to help Germany rearm and yet still be able to look at himself in the mirror each morning and see nothing disturbing. When the world's economies took a sharp downward turn in 1929, Krupps was hit like everyone else. Still, Gustav kept his dream alive of arming the coming savior. Of his 40,000 Krupp only 18 were actually working, and they only three days a week. But his other workers were not let go. They would be needed when the man on the horse appeared. Gustav's other workers were kept busy with large agricultural projects or works for the betterment of the Ruhr, 
and though making less, they were making enough to feed their families. The result? Absolute loyalty to the firm. During all this, his international business dealings that stretched all over the world, the numerous dummy corporations eventually sending their profits to Essen, Gustav was still on the lookout for Barbarossa. During the late 1920s and early 30s, Gustav seemed to be putting his money on Alfred Hugenberg of the National People's Party. Gustav had hinted that he wished President Hindenburg would put this man and his party in power so Germany could get on with its work of avenging themselves against France. But then Hugenberg, his party growing and grabbing headlines, made it known that his goal was to bring back a government very much like the Kaiser's Reich, which started a national and international crisis. The National People's Party was on its way out. So, who to turn to? There were so many parties of the political right to choose from. In fact, too many. As Hugenberg's light started to dim, another light seemed to be stretching over the land. Adolf Hitler's Nazi Party was now bigger than the National People's Party, and so Gustav pushed money their way. Bertha, the true owner of Krupps, did not like the Austrian and would never like him, but left the world of politics to her husband, as was proper. But the Nazi Party was exciting the younger Germans throughout the country, including Gustav's oldest son, Alfred. This got the attention of Gustav. So soon, Hitler got the attention of Gustav. Before the Great Depression, Hitler had asked for a tour of the works. But as the leader of a minor party, he was told no. But still, the brash man came anyway. He didn't get the full tour and was, in fact, not allowed inside the works. Still, he looked around as best he could. The most Gustav would let him see was the historical exhibits. Hitler, wanting desperately to tie his name to the Krupp works, took what he could get. In fact, his name is still there, on the exhibit's visitor ledger. Scrawled within its pages, boldly, if not hastily, Adolf Hitler. Though Berta would never say the man's name, ever, this certain gentleman, as she called him, would come to dominate this country and their works, and when he visited in the future, would stay in the Kaiser's suite, of course. He was Barbarossa. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So you probably noticed the quality of the audio for these two episodes was not great. I apologize. My microphone has died. I have ordered a new one, but it's not here yet. So bear with me, and I hope it's okay. And just to let you members know, there will be another Harry's giveaway, I think, next month or the month after that. Harry's keeps sending me kits, uh, and as long as they do... I'll keep having drawings, but just to thank the members um, for supporting me uh, for so long, I'm just going to, I think I'll just have drawings from members for a while because I just, it's my way of saying thank you. So again, thank you for supporting the show. Um, I'm thinking about taking a break from Krupps and maybe doing Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. There's a movie coming out. I'm looking forward to that. So I thought I might do a couple of episodes on that. Nothing too major as far as too long, but just to kind of cover what, you know, what, 
Hitler had to go through in watching this black American shatter all the records and beat his uh, beat his Superman. So I'll probably do a couple of those, and then we'll get back to to Gustav and Hitler as their worlds intertwine with the help of Goering. And so we'll just see how it goes. Take care, everyone.